Welcome everyone to Mindful Mondays with Laura Cross. Today we are going to journey into the unseen mind with my guest, Lincoln Stoller. He is the author of Becoming Lucid, Self-Awareness in Sleeping and Waking Life, The Hypnotic Practice in Lucidity and Dreams. So I want to introduce everyone to my guest today. Thank you, Lincoln, for joining us today. Um, You're welcome. Thank you. You've done a lot of work in personal development, brain biofeedback training, hypnotherapy, spirituals, and more. What inspired you to focus on lucidity and dreams? Um, Well, it's always a path that doesn't go straight. So it, um, you know, I just have to say that there's some dots. One was uh, altered states of uh, consciousness. It was neurology, the neurology of those states, the neurochemistry, then the psychology, and um, there are different ways in. One was sleep, and then there's dreams, and then there's trance, and then there's talk therapy. So some of them are offer more clarity in some regards than others. So, you know, talk therapy is good for focusing on issues. But I've been increasingly uh, focusing on emotions as important motivators and guides for our behavior. And um, dreams are, I would say, mostly statements of emotion um, conveyed in images and memories. So the idea of what's going on in dreams, working with dreams, which is not very easy, I must admit, brought me to lucidity, the issues of lucid dreaming, which is uh, an unresolved topic, I think. And then the different states of awareness, such as waking and sleeping and dreaming. And then there's the natural transitions of falling asleep and waking up, as well as some other states. And so I wrote that book, which largely focuses on four states, waking, lucidity, sleeping, lucidity, and these sort of half-aware states of falling asleep and waking up. So what what exactly, how would you define lucidity? What are you talking about when you say lucidity or being lucid and all that? What does that mean for you? I think it means the the illusion of self-consciousness the illusion of self-awareness, which I think is always an illusion because you have to make it up. I mean, if you stop thinking, it goes away. If you stop living, it goes away. So you've got to be engaged and you have to think about it. And even if you clear your mind and believe you're thinking nothing, you're still thinking yourself into existence at some level. So it's a question of clarity and uh, communication. So I would say lucidity is communicating with feedback as opposed to just witnessing like in a movie or a dream or a, well, I wouldn't say dream because we're talking about dreams, uh, but a drama or a movie or a novel or a plot. So being involved is almost always a kind of lucidity. Even if you think you're not involved, you are making it up as you go along. So that was the question. What can you get out of that? And can you get more depth and insight if you engage it more dramatically, forcefully, intentionally, consciously? That's really, so that's lucidity. Uh, The degree to which you're engaged with yourself and your own creative mind. Okay. So what, so for some people, I mean, I've heard some people say that they don't ever dream. Well, that's fine. You have to work at it. It does. It it is sort of inconvenient. Or is it just that they're not remembering it? Oh yeah. They don't remember it. Yeah. You dream about three hours a night, but you also dream in other States where it's, you're typically dreaming when your eyes are doing this rapid eye movement thing, which is later in the night, but you do have dreams all the time. Maybe not continuously, but in other states of sleep, you know, the states of sleep are distinguished by your brainwave patterns, which are pretty distinct. And you can have dreams, which is to say you can be woken up at any point 
and remember dreams, but the character of the dreams is different so that the only dreams we can really relate to are the more vivid visual ones that we have later in the night. The other dreams are kind of foggy and indistinct and rarely remembered because you generally don't wake up in the earlier part of the night. Um, there are exceptions. So you have to, if you want to remember your dreams, you generally have to interrupt them, which is inconvenient, especially if you're on a tight schedule, like, you know, trying to get enough sleep before you get up. So you have to have more time. And then when you do interrupt them and wake yourself up in the middle of a dream, you have to take the time to remember them because they don't, you know, they're not like written on a billboard. You have to sort of pick them out from uh, memories, follow the ideas. And generally you have, either you have a dream journal or you spend the time to narrate your dream, re-narrate your dream. And that takes another, you know, ends up taking another half an hour in addition to disturbing your sleep. So it's a hard thing to ask people to do unless they're really into it. Yeah. So when you work with people to do, you normally help them kind of try to decipher it, help them find their path. Um, I mean, I'm sure everybody's different. I have had dreams that have just flat out disturbed me and I wake up and no matter how hard I try, I fall back to sleep right in the same spot in the dream or keep having the same dream. And then there's other times that I, you know, uh, I'll, I'll remember parts of it or I won't remember some. I mean, is that the subconscious, the conscious going on or... I like to think that the dreams are a, a process of assembling things, not necessarily putting them into the order you might recognize, but sort of some order. I find my dreams are kind of, um, they reiterate my feelings or they state my feelings in funny ways that um, I'm not sure I know it they're telling me and that's fine. So if the way I imagine it is that uh, your life is kind of like a jigsaw puzzle and all the events sort of fall on you from nowhere and you're trying to put them together, connect them, follow the path, which is sort of being assembled in front of you. And uh, none of the pieces really fit. You have to sort of reimagine everything. You have to interpret and uh, assume and adjust. And at the end of the day, you're left with a kind of a mess, you know, a kind of a quickly slapdash jigsaw puzzle, which most of the pieces are kind of forced together. And that's your day. And the dream experience is a kind of reconsideration of the thing, sort of throw the whole puzzle up in the air and see what were the main influences of your day and your thoughts and your feelings and it comes out in uh sometimes visual auditory um I, my dreams have a lot of childhood scenarios people places um characters i think it's common not to feel lucid well i think yes I, that's fair to say that in most dreams you are a kind of a witness and you feel somewhat powerless if you feel, if you even feel anything at all, aside from, you know, wonder and confusion. But sometimes what's called lucidity arises in which you think, and, you know, there's no way to tell for sure, you think you're authoring the dream or you're recognizing it's a dream and I don't know what you're recognizing. Sometimes I recognize it's just a thing I can control to some degree. Or I have some latitude of control. I may not recognize it's a dream. I just think I'm going to do this, which is a kind of intentionality. And that's another way of interacting with it, which is not too common. And then the least common is to actually have a sense of yourself that's what we might call normal speaking to characters and situations that you feel are not you and having them answer you and that feels very lucid because now you feel separate and intentional but it's not all that clear whether you're 
just reading from some new script, but who cares? So, you know, you can get answers. You can speak to, who knows, your demons, your deities, your parents, uh, ghosts, or imaginary things, if you're in that situation. So it, I think, veers toward hypnosis, trance work, mental health. Uh, you can, or maybe some people can, address issues of trauma and depression. But I would say, you know, you're barely, in the dream context, you're barely in control. Barely, which means not much. But I think that's kind of healthy. You know, like we say, listen to your body and do what's you know, feels right. Mm-hmm. Well, in this case, you're letting your mind, I mean, no matter how in control you think you are, you're not really, or something is, but it's a higher part of yourself than your conscious, everyday mind. I'd say it's a part of you that's more in contact with your emotions. Because, uh, you know, we all have these, I think, funny dreams in which things morph from one thing to another, from your parents to your lovers to your house to your car to a cliff to a volcano. And it seems like it makes no sense. But if you just take a looser view, it does make a certain amount of sense. These, These things are reminding, they remind each other of themselves. And you're just following along it's like you're sifting through the the discarded parts on the cutting room floor and seeing what um may have been overlooked overlooked or trying to figure out what fits (laughs) yeah you have to have a certain amount of courage and support and confidence and and like you said it can be disturbing but that's not bad if if disturbing is what's going to get you forward then disturbing might be what you need uh, maybe it's not what your friends are going to encourage you to do. So uh, it could be an opportunity. So that's why I encourage dream work with my therapy clients. But as I say, it takes work. It's usually not on people's front burner, right? They have some other problem. I spend most of my time trying to tell them that that's not really their problem. That's just their symptom. Their problem is a little further down than that. Sure. Now, when you talk about being lucid and stuff, and even in dreams or awakening, how does that relate to self-awareness? Do you think, it, I mean, does it is it trying to tell you something? I've heard people refer to it as being self-awareness or helping them become a, a better human through different experiences. I mean, how how do you feel that relates? I think it's, it's, it's difficult to... Uh draw a clear boundary, you know, self-awareness is defined in terms of the two extremes of being unaware and being fully aware. And we don't really know what either of those mean. I mean, unaware might be like being dead or sort of mentally dead. And, but fully aware, nobody knows what fully aware means because there's so much going on in the world. As I was telling somebody the other day, Information from the whole history of the universe, from the beginning to the present, is constantly bombarding us all the time. And what, do we, what do we know? We know nothing. You know, our memory can, you know, see a few things each second and maybe remember a few numbers and occasional thought. We're really limited in terms of what our lucid conscious mind can do. And I think that's why we have to be very selective about what we pay attention to. Because if you're distracted, a lot of unexpected things can happen. Aside from falling off the sidewalk and not listening to your friends, partners, and boss, you can miss a lot of cues and opportunities. But then the question is, you've built a life for yourself with certain people and places and now there may be some problems. And are those problems in the places you've built and are paying attention to? So that maybe you should actually tune out some of the world you've built for yourself and tune in some of the world you've ignored. But then, you know, 
like, you know, none of these questions have simple answers. The world you've ignored, you've ignored for some reasons. They may be traumas and maybe suffering and grief. And are you ready for that? So I do think that uh, maybe uh, this is my sort of mood of the day. You know, courage is very important. You have to be courageous to change. And if you're in an environment that's not supporting you, or that's abusing you, or that there's uh, some sort of violence being done to you, or that you're doing to anyone else, you have to get out of that, you know, because those environments are overwhelming, you know, and you will have no latitude and freedom and uh, no support in changing in an environment that's in some state of crisis. So like get out of crisis is sort of the first message. And that crisis could be just tension or anxiety. It doesn't have to be depression or trauma or conflict. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a different question for everybody. It is. I mean, for some people, it's changing environment. But like you said, you know, having courage or having the, the right people around you is always a, a big a big plus <laughs> get got a change and get out of an environment that's not healthier and it's not doing, you know, that's just doing more damage to you because it, it weighs on your mind and stuff. I know we always talk about like conscious and subconscious um, a lot. Do you feel that they're separate things they are working together or? I define them as very different. I define the unconscious as what you do without being aware, reflexive, habitual, um, instinctive actions and reactions, attitudes and thoughts and memories that just um, are the first things that come to you. Not necessarily the best things, but the first things. So touch a hot stove, you take your hand off the hot stove. Um, see somebody open a car door while you're driving, you tense your arms and focus on driving around them. And all, all these, this is like, un, this thing happens unconsciously. Uh, you know, something alerts you to environment and your pulse uh, rate increases and your breath maybe gets more tense and shallow. This is all unconscious stuff. Um, and even uh, seeing things, this is one of the, you know, if you've been aware of mentalists, people who can control your, so supposedly control your mind, the way it's done is by controlling your attention and cueing you to things and bringing things into your subconscious, well, I would say unconscious awareness. So, um, you know, the things you see on your drive to work will cue you into certain attitudes and the politics and current events that we listen to of wars and fires and um, pandemics and world climate change naturally put us in a certain state of mind which we can claim to be immune to but we're unconsciously not immune to you just alert yourself so that's the unconscious and then the subconscious is uh the deeper realm of thoughts and feelings and histories that you haven't really integrated your what i would call higher self your wiser self your child your all the stuff that psychology talks about your your protector your injured child um your ancestral connections these aren't instinctive reflexive elements they are unincorporated aspects of yourself which you could grow into or you could heal or emerge but generally they're not gonna they're not like knee-jerk reactions uh in most cases i mean Sometimes you can be triggered, especially with our parents. Our, our parents and our family of origin often trigger us to immediately, you know, exhibit a certain part of ourself. You know, you can cry or laugh and it you find yourself, um, you know, carried on some sort of energy that you didn't expect. That, that I would call subconscious. And then, con so then compared to that, the conscious mind is just like, the conscious mind is like a little dog running around, running along behind the car trying to keep up with uh, current events. And it doesn't have nearly as much power as we think it does. 
No, from what we live, we live all those studies I've seen and stuff. Most of you know, most of what we hold is in the subconscious. It's not really in the conscious. I think it's kind no, of our kind of gets us going on autopilot. Yeah, our conscious is like, uh, you know, it, it's just like the the ignition in the cylinder. It's not the power of the engine. Yeah. So absolutely. that's how I divide them. Well, I know you have um, some exercises and stuff that people can do as far as waking and, and practicing to become lucid, and we will get more into that. But we do need to take a break really quick from our sponsors, and we will be right back. of Make Mental Health Matter. Join me on Mondays at 11 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on the Achieve TV network right here on E360 TV. And we are back. So Lincoln, um, in your book, you talk about some of those, these waking exercises, because as you mentioned, I know one of your exercises, the first one is, you know, because we're in a hustle and bustle world, we're ever, always running around and we're not always like, really, are we, you're quite kind of one of your questions was like, are we really paying attention to what's around us? And it mentions, um, you know, when your, ex- your first exercise mentions what is in front of me and have I seen it before? Uh, what is what is the purpose of like some of these exercises and how does that help people with their dreams and getting into their mind? I think the uh, underlying idea is that uh, there's a reflection between becoming more aware in your dreams and becoming more aware in your life. And if you become more aware in your life, which means paying more attention to details and more attention to your own decisions and reactions and how you're focusing on things, then you'll pay more attention in your dreams because it will be your natural state of uh, alertness and to some extent vigilance, but not to the level of anxiety. I think most of us We pay as little attention as necessary. It gives us space to wander and consider and be ourselves. But we miss a lot. And we necessarily are a little sort of dim with regard to uh, insight. Because we're not, I mean, it's exhausting to pay 100% of attention to everything all the time. It is. Relaxation sort of means disconnection. But at the same time, there's this balance. You know, you have to... This is like... I've done a lot of physical things. And one of the interesting physical things is slack rope walking. Which is interesting because you have to be relaxed and responsive. And it's a good metaphor because you can't let your mind drift. Because the things you need to react to in balance are immediate and very short term but you can't be tense either because then you you know get in this feedback loop when you just fall off the rope so you have to be both relaxed 
I mean, it's not unlike dancing. I mean, frankly, it's not unlike walking. Um, it's not unlike being balanced in your body. You have to be attentive and relaxed. So the exercises were start being that in your daily life. Uh, you can, I mean, there are many ways to do it. You could say that mindfulness is a way to do it. I happen to like neurofeedback, which is really a kind of just facilitated mindfulness, where you can watch your brainwaves go up and down while you're playing with your attention. And then there's some indication of whether you're getting more or less tense. Because here again, it's the question of the unconscious. We don't really know what the optimal state of our mind is, because it there is no one. It's reactive. And now you've gotten a habitual way of behaving, and, you know, you may... I mean, who knows what you consider yourself to be, but in the world you may be considered uh, tense, or you may be considered uh, open or generous. And a lot of these, we think that they're intentional, but a lot of them are just neural states of reactivity. You know, to be generous, you have to be, uh, you have to feel unthreatened, and you have to feel uh, enabled. There's, you have something to give, and you're not afraid of giving it. If you're tense and feeling um, under threat, you will generally not feel generous. But this is a neural state as much as a, you know, idea. So, the, I mean, that's where mindfulness and the neurofeedback comes in. And to become aware of that is what I'm talking about. To become aware of how the state you're in and what you have done to put yourself in that state. And you you know, you know, naturally will say, I didn't do anything, I'm just reacting, I'm doing my best. These are the situations that have come. But the, over a longer term, they're really the situations you made, the people you chose to work with, how you chose to present yourself. Uh, so there's always this funny thing when I work with people and training their brainwaves, that they inevitably say nothing happens because they are their brainwaves no matter what their brain waves are. It's like looking at a moving train. You feel like you're stationary, the landscape's moving. No matter how which direction you're going in, you're stationary, the landscape's moving. So I'll train people with brainwave training and they'll say, nothing happened, but everyone's nicer to me today. Or people offered me a job, but you know they came up to me. It's like all these strange things happened, but it wasn't me. I didn't change, but the truth is they did change. They were, you know, you could call it, you might as well call it telepathy because that's a good word for something we don't understand. Or you could call it body language that you weren't aware of. So becoming more aware of that, I think, really has to be the first step. That's why I'm sort of against talk therapy because it's all from the same point of view, just playing with the pieces without reshaping the pieces. So I'm talking about reshaping your instincts and reflexes, or at least getting control of them, or getting aware of them. And it does step now into dreaming. I don't think you will remember your dreams unless you are flexible enough to hear them without freaking out and getting stressed. I mean, if your dreams stress you, then you probably won't remember them. Because then they'll... Then you'll just wake up stressed every day, and that's really not their purpose. Their purpose is to integrate, not threaten you. So you have to be open to the chaos of dreams. Well, okay. But I'd say that it would be healthy just to be open to the chaos of life, you know? To not feel so threatened. Um, so I'm making these statements based on my experience and the experience I have with my clients and my partners and friends and family. And uh, I think I'm pretty right in saying that uh, the less threatened you are, the further you'll progress in change and uh, insight. And then you sort of come back to courage. So you have to have a certain amount of courage to feel less threatened because we live in a threatening world.
and there are people who will take advantage of us. And we, unfortunately, feel we need to take advantage of people, because that's, you know, the world we live in. So finding that in a a kind of co-creative way, and building that, so you got to build that, you know, you got to, a lot of the people who come to me come with a relationship issues, or they have relationship issues, well, we all have them, and uh, one of the things I have to say, well, I don't know if I say it right away, but I think it, is that you need to reshape your relationships if you want yourself to change, you know, so if you have problems with your mother, you've got to resolve those problems, don't expect your mother to resolve them, don't expect anybody to do what you need for yourself. But if you figure out what you need and what you believe in, and then you put yourself in that place, then we can start talking about boundaries. Like, okay, did they come up to the bar and meet you with a positive relationship that you asked for and offered? Or did they refuse? And now where's your boundary? Because now you have a choice. Um, may be a difficult choice because it may mean, you know, moving people closer and other people further away. And we tend to be attached. Everybody's so attached. It's hard. I mean, because there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of things. I always try to tell people, it's like, you know, if you can't control it, let it go. Because really all you can, can truly control is yourself and what you do. Um, you know, but like when it comes to dreams, I, I've had those and it's like, it's like I realize in the dream that it, it's a dream and it couldn't possibly be true. But I, I know I've heard of some people, you had shared a video with me with a gentleman that can like go in and actually control and do stuff while he's dreaming. So it's, it, it was, to me, it was kind of a fascinating concept and I'm not sure how you even get to that kind of state. I think you work there. I think you can work it step by step. You know, first you need to dream. And then you need to give yourself time. Different people have different opportunities. One of the things you said, you did this too, go back to the dream that you've had. So that means that you, first of all, woke up in the middle of the dream to the point where you could recall it was a dream and you were separate from it but then gave yourself the time and had the state of relaxation to go back to sleep. People with insomnia tend to wake up, they don't go back to sleep. That's a different problem. But if you can go back to sleep, you know, if you focus on the situation and you replay it in your mind and you put yourself back there and you ask yourself what disturbed you about the situation and what you would like to do and where would you like it to go, it often will oblige you to recreate to some degree where you left off with your intentions attached to it some way. You may not feel that you were now, um, you know, booking your flight to Tahiti, but you might find yourself on a train to your favorite vacation spot. Uh, you know, it may change the tone of the dream. Your intention might. And I, I, I personally don't, I don't see the difference. So, you know, if you dream that you now have decided to go on your flight to Tahiti, well, okay, that's fine. Or if you find yourself now dreaming about on a train to the mountains, well, so what? You know, same destination. You know, this sort of gets, well, all these things are related, gets into sort of psychedelics, which are popular these days, which have a similar tone, you know, what you intend, what you what you uh, focus on, what you think you need to do. And then in one case, you go fall asleep and you're in a dream. In another case, you take some chemical and you're on some psychedelic trip. But in both cases, you're a little out of control and you may or may not get what you intended. And I think there's a third level, which I like the most, which is hypnosis which doesn't involve any chemicals and doesn't require you to fall asleep. And some people can do that. I try to do it with everyone and I'm always amused at how some people can get more deeply into it. I don't tell them that's what I'm doing. I just sort of, you know, ask them to close their eyes and imagine things. And some people can really fall into it as if they were totally engulfed in their memory and their vision. And other people talk to me as if they're sort of writing a book report on something they read last week. And 
they're not connected. But, you know, I'm still peddling and pushing them and asking them to be involved emotionally, and they decide to what level they want to oblige me. So I would say that, you know, you can work at becoming more lucid in your life and in your dreams, and then you can complain that you did or didn't succeed, or whatever you say, but you should generally be okay with yourself, you know, recognize that just as the dreams are a little beyond your reach, so is your response to your intention. Um, you know, maybe I know people who won't, oh, like my father, he was a child of an abusive mother, he said he never dreamed. Well, his dreams would have been horror dreams. So, just as well he didn't remember them. I'm sure he dreamed, but, you know, he didn't need to be terrorized. So, uh, I know people who I think have terrible childhoods. I don't want to break the dam, because it's not my role right. to uh, open that. But I might suggest that there's uh, opportunities there, and... Well, it depends. Often these people don't come to me. I just know them uh, personally. Uh, you know, the people who come for counseling or therapy are usually the people who are willing to do something, and the ones who don't come are ambivalent and suspicious or defensive. And you don't, you know, you have no right to interfere if that's the way they feel. Um like I tell my therapy clients, my role is to say stupid stuff. All the stuff that no one else would say, I get paid to say. And I make a fool of myself, and I regret saying things. Because that's the risk I, you know, I take. I, I walk the plank, and sometimes I fall off it. And I pay the price, but then I get paid for it. So, you know, it's a little better. That's true. So do you think that maybe then, like you said, that person that has maybe terror and says they don't dream, you think it's the way of their brain or their body kind of protecting them or they just shut off? Yeah, you know, but but it's hard to say what's appropriate. People get sick, they get ill, they get backaches, they get, uh, you know, you could say, well, the tension is telling you to relax or the tension is telling you that it's time for a vacation. But how much tension and illness do you need before you hear the message? I'm always amazed that some cancer survivors say it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, okay, but then there are quite a few cancer cancer patients who didn't survive, and maybe it wasn't the best thing that happened to them. And where are you going to draw the line, or what caused it to go in a positive direction for some people, and could it have been avoided in the first place? Um, hard to say. Some of the stuff we carry isn't even ours. It's, you know, legacy stuff, lineage, maybe even genetic, you know, or <laughs> I did a PhD in physics. I have to say, I think as time goes on, I have less and less respect for physicists, not as technicians, but as empathetic people. They're not a very empathetic bunch. And so some of my student colleagues were very artistic and they were just beaten up and basically chewed up and thrown out. And that's a pity because they would be the most creative people, but they were not allowed and they were not wanted or welcome in a highly technical money driven, you know, field. Um, so what's appropriate, you know, for those, you know, so it's hard to say that what would I say to those people, you know, I would be encouraging, but, but if they pursued physics as creative people, they weren't going to get more welcome further on. It would be an uphill fight all the way. Um, the people I know who were the best physicists were both the most skilled and the most creative and the most self-confident, which is to say they wouldn't take no for an answer and they wouldn't take, you know, abuse either. Um, they managed their lives carefully. So, you know, here you are. I guess the question for this whole discussion is how do you manage your life carefully? And you do it by being aware of what hurts you and what helps you 
and taking the courage to draw the line, set boundaries and say, well, you know, I love you, but you're not helping me. So we have to change this environment. That could be your mother or it could be your partner. And then there's going to be blowback uh, by people who aren't ready to change or don't want to change or who are feeding off you or who you're feeding because you need something that they're giving. You know, it starts to sound Buddhist after a while. You know, it's like, you know, all, you know, goodwill to all and free the world from suffering. And so here you are. What are you you going to do? Work on your mental health, work on your financial health, work on your social health, work on your dreams. Seems irrelevant dreams at this point, but they're not irrelevant. No, and if you've got, you know, dreams that are constantly disturbing you, or like you said, some people have insomnia and stuff, you know, when you don't get sleep, that affects your health and your your well-being anyway, because you do need to sleep. But, yes. And I found it interesting that the that video that you shared with me, and it's something I didn't even really think about, but um, is that I, I guess scientific or the numbers show that basically we spend a third of our life sleeping. Mm-hmm. Not all of it's dreaming. Only a third of that is dreaming. But, yeah, a third of our life sleeping. Well, you know, we've got to clean up. It's just like, you know, how much of the time in your kitchen do you spend cooking and how much do you spend cleaning? A lot more cleaning, I think, than cooking. <laughs> it seems like it. I can tell you that much. It just feels like it. <laughs> yeah. And if you never clean your kitchen and it's a big mess, then what's the quality of your cooking? You know, I'm just, you know, making that as a metaphor for life. You know, how much do you spend cleaning up and taking care of things and putting them back in order? I mean, I often say to myself, how many times have I put this plate back on the shelf? It seems like every day I put it back 10 times. And it's almost it's almost a nightmare. It could easily become a nightmare, you know, the repetitive kitchen cleaning nightmare. But, you know, you just have to say, well, you know, it's what's it's the price of using the utensils you know it is the garbage it has other consequences (laughs) taking out the garbage yeah Yeah. um i mean a lot of people us all of us are attached to a lot of our garbage well you know when do you call something garbage when is it used up when is a relationship used up when are you mature enough to move on how would you know these unless there was some pain telling you because if there was no pain, why would you move on? I mean, maybe I'm being too simple, but, you know, if you're not paying attention, then it's going to get, the signal is going to have to get louder. It's some, some sort, some signal. So I've got and a 13 year old. hit bottom before they even hear or see that so, signal. That's right. I don't know. I think families are great. Also, hmm, there's so much to talk about. I spent my teenage years mountaineering and that's a way of getting a strong signal you know you go out and you get a strong signal, you get hit in the head or you 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 know hurt yourself or you threaten yourself and then i some people don't like me saying this i regretted doing it afterwards i mean 40 years afterwards not at the time but i thought gee you know was i was it really necessary to take those risks i mean maybe it was at the time, they served a purpose. It got me out of uh, an environment I thought was unrewarding, like high school. Mm-hmm. Got me out of high school. I I became very disrespectful of high school because I gained a new global, you know, vision of people and places, and that was good. I felt that was real, and I do. I do generally try to say that to people, you know, find real challenges, not manufactured challenges. The ones that, you know, the thing about a real challenge is it has a real consequence. So the real benefit comes with a real risk. And now here you've got, well, most people don't really like that. They'd rather have a family and a lawn and a mortgage and a recreational vehicle and a vacation and a job. But all of that is sort of uh, dulls your senses. And then it uh, becomes an attachment. And then you become static. 
Yeah, it reminds me of an older uh, comedian, and I'll, I'll put it the polite way, but basically where other people's you know stuff is junk and your junk is stuff. <laughs> Not quite the word he used, but that's the word we're going to use here. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I follow your drift there. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so I mean, it is difficult. It's almost. Well, it comes back to sort of courage. I encourage people. Here, I have difficulty with this myself. I don't really like the idea of therapy because it's sort of patho it pathologizes a natural process of change and support and encouragement. So I kind of call it counseling, but then counseling sounds therapeutic too. And I'd sort of like to call it coaching, but then coaching has got a reputation for being indifferent to you know history and problems. So I don't know what to call it. I think everything, no matter what you call it, it it can either have a positive or a negative connotation to it. I mean, some people would rather call it mentoring or accountability. Yes, I mean, right. We we can think of a lot of different words for that. But um, and I know we're going to be out of time here in a few minutes. So I have your website there on the bottom. I know they can connect with you there. Um, and your book, Becoming Lucid, if they if people want to go more in-depth with that, it comes with also, um, you can download your hip, hip your hypnotic sessions and stuff on there. Well, that's right. There are nine chapters, and each one has a hypnotic uh, audio to attempt to manifest the ideas in a kind of imaginary way. And I should say, I think, yes, um, that if you sign up for the uh, free, you know, blog, you get a free copy of the digital book and the links to the digital audio files. So your clients, what what mo what mostly do you work with with clients today? Is it hypnotherapy? Is it helping them out with their dreams or a combination of it? You know, I have to do what people are best at. Some people are really dream adept. And uh, with them, you know, every time I speak to them, it's, you know, taking apart the dream of, you know, the latest night. But it's rare. Most people, you know, I, I ask myself this, you know, are, are the kind of people that come to me a reflection of me or the reflection of my skills? I tend to be intellectual and rational. And I get people who are like that, mostly. But I love the people I get sometimes who are just totally the opposite, totally nuts, totally, I just like, you know, ready to just Vincent Van Gogh types. I love those people. They're a challenge. And I work really well with them. Um, you know, this is my problem. As a therapist, you're always like, am I being helpful? Am I worth the price I'm charging? Uh, will you give me the reward that makes me feel fulfilled but none of which is my business you know basically i just charge for my time and i do my best and uh i tend to get people who are anxious but that may be the state of the world um i like to work with people who are effective because then i feel it's leveraging my effect to a larger extent but who knows you know people are dealing with legacy issues that could have uh, hundreds of years of history and they may be fixing a tremendously important historical lineage, which I, you know, what do I know? I, I'm just, like I say, I'm just the mule. They attach me to their wagon and I pull forward and I try not to lead the wagon off the cliff. But what do I know? I, I only know what they tell me. And they may, they may be making everything up for all I know. It could all be a fantasy which doesn't matter. I have to deal with it, whatever it is. Right. And, <laughs> and I think, yeah. And I think you, you know, probably hit the nail on the head there. I think a lot of people are anxious nowadays with, you know, stuff going on, all the negative stuff we're constantly bombarded with. I think it leaves a lot of anxiety in a lot of people. I think it will make, it's not going to get better as the world gets more interconnected. Only more problems will become closer to us. So I, I think uh, I don't, it's not that we have to get used to it. I think we have to overcome it. We have to expand our power to fix the larger world. And that's a 
question of courage. We have to have the courage to have an opinion about things we don't know, which is sort of my business. I'm, I'm, I'm paid to have an opinion about things I don't know much about. And we, and we all have opinions. We know that. <laughs> so Yeah, good some ones more, and bad some ones. Some more important yeah. than others, some, some welcomed, some unwelcomed, but, you know, we always have plenty but, of opinions. So what I'd say is that it's important to take the risks and take a stand and establish value and hold your boundaries. And you'll get blowback and resistance. And that's, I think that's like, that's like the purpose of being human is to advance the level of discernment and consciousness at the cost of your own, you know, energy and, and some of your stuff, you know, you may lose some of your stuff in the process. Yep. And sometimes that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. That's right. Nope. Not a bad thing at all. Well, we are almost out of time. So Lincoln, I want to uh, thank you very much for joining us today and um, yeah, if anybody wants to dig into that, I, I found it really kind of fascinating to learn more about because I had never even heard of those terms of waking lucidity or actually kind of ways to interact in your dream and even potentially control them. Uh, it, it, yeah, it was a lot of fascinating stuff. And, and I need to go back and try do when I have a quiet moment and, and do those, you know, hypnotherapies and see what what happens with that. Well, you know, it's you have to invite it. It will it will decide whether Laura Cross will be in attendance. Y you know, you have to make the uh make the grade in in um in being capable. And then you'll be invited in. It's it, you're not in control. You're, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's part just of the furniture. Weird, it, yeah, the whole thing is just all kind of a weird gray area. Yeah, there's there's is, no black is. and white to any of it. Mm-mm, there isn't. But, well, Lincoln, thank you again very much for joining us. And uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. That is all the time we have for today. So um, Thank you, Laura. Yep, thank you. And definitely contact Lincoln or check out that book if you want to know more about, you know, the dreaming how and your mind, maybe get some answers of how that's working. Um, lots of great information in there. But thanks again for joining us. And we will see you all next week. And remember to be here and be mindful. <laughs>